Hello there, Vector Podcast, season two. We are relaunching after summer and uh, there was a little bit of break. Last episode was from Berlin Buzzwords. And today, coincidentally, we have a guest from Berlin, Malte Peach, uh, CTO of DeepSet, uh, the company behind Haystack. So we're going to be diving into what I call a neural framework, but I wonder if Malte would, would like give a different picture there, but still very interested to learn and, 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 and dive into multiple topics there. Hey, Malte, how are you doing? I'm good, doing great. Thanks for, for having me today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm great. It's still summer. It's like super hot. And as we were exchanging before, before the recording, it's like super, super hot, but I like it. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, before we dive into what, what is Haystack, I really like to learn about yourself and how, what is your background and how did you kind of find yourself in this space of what we call vector search? I wonder if you describe it differently, but I, I call it vector search, vector search players. So can you tell a bit about that? Yeah, sure, happy, happy to do that. Um, so yeah, I would say my background is uh, mostly in NLP engineering, what we would call it probably these days. And um, during my studies, I basically had no clue about NLP. I think it wasn't really any part of, of our uh, coursework or, or wasn't really a thing. Um, and it all for me all then started uh, basically after my studies when I did the, like the research project in the US, um, which was at the intersection of machine learning and healthcare. And the big, big focus there was on numerical data. So we were basically trying to find signals, patterns um, in laboratory measurements uh, for kidney disease patients to predict some kind of risks. And that was all yeah, kind of numerical data um, and um, yeah, NLP wasn't really uh, really scope of that project, but there was for me then basically one uh, kind of event that uh, that made me then um, get in touch with NLP and, and eventually fell fall in love. Uh, and it was really um, in this project we um, tried to predict a lot of these risk factors, doing a lot of I would say quite fancy modeling to to get some uh, some good signals. And in the, at the end it kind of worked, uh, we were able to predict some, some risks, but when we then um, talked to, to doctors and, uh, and showed them um, these results or asked for their feedback, um, they said, yeah, yeah, it's, that's uh, all correct. Yeah, but it's not really new. Like, we knew that before. Um, but this part here, this, like, this is an interesting one. And this is, what did you do there? And that was um, uh, basically the only small part where we, uh, where we looked at uh, written, notes of uh, of doctors during treatments and from a modeling perspective that was really i would say nothing fancy nothing advanced nothing where we spend a lot of time but at the end it was the, the point i think where um the um the, uh, doctors the physicians saw the biggest value and that kind of got me then thinking and thought okay wow like uh, just this kind of data source it was something they couldn't really access before um, and now with this like very simple naive method, they somehow saw a value, a new thing. And, um, and that's basically where I, I, I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. Um, what can you actually then do with more advanced methods if, uh, if you have more fancy models? How can you make this kind of unused data source then accessible? Um, and uh, yeah, basically realizing this, the power of it. And um, 
yeah, that's basically when I then started digging deeper, uh, working more on NLP um, um, at some point and said, uh, like left, left research because I was really interested in seeing these models working in the real world. How do they work at scale? How can they really then solve problems every day? Um, and uh, basically I came back to, to Germany, worked in a couple of startups, always at this say, NLP at scale kind of intersection, a lot in uh, online advertisement, recommender systems, um, and, uh, and then eventually, I think, four years ago, um, then we started uh, sort of DeepSet. And uh, together with uh, two colleagues, we founded DeepSet, basically because we saw this, uh, this big motion AP, it was kind of piling up. That was all like still pre-transformers, but there were early signs, I think, on, on, on research that, uh, that uh, things are becoming more feasible and super interesting things became possible. Um, at the same time, we also saw that there's this big gap, you know, like things becoming possible on research side didn't really mean people were using it in production in the industry. And uh, I think we were at this, this interesting bubble uh, back then uh, where we did it, where we applied uh, deep learning models at scale, saw how that worked, but also saw how much of work it actually is, of manual work to get it done. Um, and, uh, and basically we have the early early days of DeepSet were, were mainly around how can we bridge that gap? How can we um, get latest models from research uh, into production in the industry? What kind of product tooling uh, can, can, we, uh, can we build to make that um, transition easier? Um, yeah, and that's basically how we, how we ended up in the, in the startup world, building, uh, building out uh, DeepSet. Um, and um, yeah, and initially, uh, yeah, I said it was really more about we saw this problem. We had a couple of let's say product hypotheses, but we didn't didn't let's say place a bet on uh, directly on one of them. Um, we rather said, okay, let's let's go out there, let's really try to understand for one year what are really repetitive use cases out there, um, what are really the pain points of other. Um, enterprise uh, teams that are working in that field, and then kind of uh, kind of settling on a on a product and then building it out. Um, yeah, and that's basically after one year how we ended up in search, <laughs> um, because that was uh, I would say really the the one use case, the dominant use case that was uh, present in every company that we worked with, and uh, that was really a big say valuable use case um, where the push not only came from the developers uh, who wanted to do something better, but also actually from the, from the business side where people saw big value and said, hey, like, I use Google every day. Why can't we have something similar in our product or in our internal data sets? And, um, and that I think was uh, something that's, that got us then really interested. Um, and at the same time, then on the, on the tech side, uh, basically learning more and more about the pain points. Why is it actually so difficult for, for people in these, uh, in these enterprises to build modern search systems? What could you actually do to, to help them? Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Actually, four or five years ago, could you have imagined that NLP would cross uh, paths with search? Because like in many ways, the sparse search, uh, which existed for many, many years before, uh, was in some sense 
I, I sense it that way in mailing lists, let's say Apache Solar mailing list, people were dreaming about applying an LP in some way compared to what is ha happening right now. Um, I don't want to downplay those efforts, but I'm saying things like you could um, embed a uh, post tag, part of speech tag on, on term level, and then use that during search. Again, you need to run some kind of parser on the query and then use that payload information to filter through, let's say, adjectives and verbs or something like that. You know, I don't know if there was any um, practical application in place. Probably there was. Uh, but again, if you compare that to what is happening today, you basically have a vast array of models, right? Deep learning models that can be applied directly to search using vector search uh, approach. Could you have imagined this happening when you when you were about to start the company? No, I would say I was. Uh, I think what we we had big big uh, say dreams about NLP, and we 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 were true believers that uh, that things become. Um, easier and uh, and say more feasible in production, um, but that was more actually on the I would say transfer learning side and um, making models let's say more easily adoptable to certain domains. Um, for search, I think that was for us um, yeah, only then on our journey where we kind of realized oh like that's actually two interesting different fields kind of. Uh, connecting over time, right? And also, I felt from at least from my own perspective, from a community side, from the people who worked on information retrieval, um, there was, I think, for a long time, a, a big, um, um, there were like a lot of skeptic uh, uh, people um, uh, when we talked about NLP or dense, dense retrieval for a good reason, right? Because I think there was also like a lot of hype. Uh, around deep learning and still um, I would say a lot of promises that were made, like um, that it will just outperform sparse retrieval um, out of the box. Um, and then I think many of these promises were not hold um, for a long time. Um, yeah, but I think then basically there was an, another phase where I think people realized, oh, actually now it's kind of starting to work. And oh, not only just in, in research and these, these ivory towers, and lab settings, but actually also in uh, in reality at, at scale, and I think that was then fast also the the moment where it got really interesting. And I think since then, just crazy to see how how things are progressing. When think about a multimodal search, or um, yeah, just also like more I say going away from document retrieval to to maybe something like question answering, which we do a lot. Um, um, yeah, it's really really crazy to see what's what's possible these days and i i couldn't have imagined uh that it's going so fast yeah yeah and there are a lot of contributors as well of course um i just happened to give give, give a, a talk about players in vector search i will link it in the show notes which was just published with c's um london ir meetup um but but even that during that presentation i felt like i'm scratching the the tip of the iceberg in some sense. I know there is so much happening. Um, and in Haystack, like, did, did you have a vision for the, pro like you said, you didn't know what the product will be, but you knew uh, sort of the repetitive use cases in a way, right? And also challenges. Can you share some of the early day challenges that, that you saw? And, and do you think that they are solved today or are they still kind of like in the mix of, we need to fix some things there? Mm. Um 
So I think that was basically uh, the like all about this first year of DeepSet where we did these learnings where it wasn't that clear. Um, but after that year, I think we had a lot of uh, clear insights and uh, and at least for us a clear vision also for Haystack what we wanna what we wanna solve there. And um, I would say the big challenge, the big problem that we focused on that we saw in uh, in, in the industry was. Um, having just all these scattered technologies and um, and basically Haystack is trying and always as I would say as a design philosophy and design principle has um, has two things in place that try to bring these scattered technologies together in a meaningful way and um, what I mean with that is basically um, if you think about search it's I would say really it's a lot more than uh, than model right and uh, Typically, you have vector databases. Um, you maybe chain together multiple models. Um, you have some things you want to do at indexing time. You have other things you want to do at query time. Um, and for each of these, say, kind of components that you need at the end, um, there are so many different options that you um, that you can plug in. And often, it's hard to to um, say in the in the early days. I don't know. Do I go for Elasticsearch or something like Pinecone, a vector database. Do I go for this model or that model? Do I need a, I don't know, um, just a retriever in my pipeline or do I actually also need to add a, add a re-ranker or something else? Um, and uh, we just saw that teams are, were basically spending a lot of time on gluing these things together manually. And uh, even when they had it once, there was some constant I know, maintenance work or iterations where they had to exchange uh, uh, one component of their of their system, um, and uh, that was really just slowing them down a lot, and uh, sometimes even then causing that a uh, uh, project got um, uh, stale over time, um, not really ending up in production, but kind of uh, dying in the prototyping stage because it just took so long, and uh, uh, and and things got kind of sidetracked, and. Um, and with Haystack, we basically tried to solve that with having very clear building blocks, like, um, for example, a retriever, which very clear interface. And uh, within that, you can swap a lot of different um, technologies, models, and the same for basically vector databases or document stores, where you can very easily uh, change between something like Elastic, Search, uh, Pinecone, VV8, and, uh, and whatnot. Um, so I would say that's the was the one thing, these building blocks. And um, trying to get the focus of um, developers back on uh, making these say, creative decisions, what they actually want to have in their pipeline, trying it out with with end users rather than just spending time on gluing things together. Um, and the second thing is, uh, is um, I would say, a very uh, deep concept also in, in, um, in Haystack uh, are pipelines. So um, really, what we saw is it's it's not just one model. It's uh, typically a couple of steps that you want to have there. Um, so in Haystack, we we started early on having um, direct acyclic graphs where you can have different nodes. And basically, when you have a, a query uh, or an indexing time file that kind of hits the pipeline, um, you kind of route it through this graph. And that can be very easy. Where you just say, I have a query. I do put it to a retriever, and I get back my documents. Um, or it can go basically quite complex where you say, oh, like depending on the query type, I don't know if it's a keyword query, I route it a certain uh, path in my graph 
my pipeline uh, or if it's say a question maybe i go a different way and uh, and i have different models um, basically involved in uh, in my uh, in my search request and um yeah these two i would say are the the core principles in Haystack. Yeah, that's very interesting. So that second thing, the cyclic graph, uh, would allow for very complex uh, scenarios, right? Like as you explained, we could in principle support question answering uh, use case side by side with uh, kind of like normal search with theory rankers and stuff, right? Is that is that correct? Exactly. So, and that's what we basically learned from customers. Like when we, when we saw. Um, there was a big interest in something like question answering and people say, wow, like that's, that's amazing. Can we use that for our website or for, you know, for our product here? Um, but doing that switch in a, in a production case is quite tough, right? Like if people are used to do keyword queries and they, they know, I know I have to enter here keywords to get basically my results. And then from one day to the other, you switch to more semantic queries, maybe more to questions or also, I think in dense retrieval, if you really have more sentences that you that you use, um, it takes some some time for people to adjust. And um, we saw that in, in a couple of scenarios that um, basically the traffic or the kind of requests that come in um, start a lot with keyword queries, and then over time slowly shift towards more semantic queries. Uh, when people realize, oh, I can actually also ask a question, and oh, it's like a bit like Google. Um, then there is this trend, but uh, you need, I think, to have an have an option in your system to to allow both for a certain time. And um, and uh, in Haystack, basically, we we do that with a query classifier where you can uh, initially basically classify is that a question or a keyword query, or you could go do it also semantically, like or like a, say on a topic level, um, saying oh like this is a query for a certain type of category in my my um, in my document set. And then maybe uh, do something different. And and like earlier on, uh, Haystack did it integrate with any database per se? Was it like Elasticsearch back then? Yeah, like the basically starting point was Elasticsearch. It was the the very first um, document store we had. No. But Elasticsearch back then didn't, I believe, didn't support neural search, right? So how did you actually gel these things together? Yeah, that was just like kind of coming then over time, right? So it was. I think the the era where um, like Elasticsearch was for us was really we came from a question answering uh, use cases a lot and there was really like how do we scale that like how can we now ask questions not on a on a single document and a single small passage but how can we do it actually on uh, millions of files and um, and uh, BM twenty five like as a retriever as a step before that was was okay was not not too bad um, and that's kind of how it started and then very fast uh, evolved into into a say, vector search direction um, where we had then files basically as a as a next document store um, in combination with some uh, some SQL database for for all the metadata and so on and then it basically kind of uh, I think took off on the on the vector database side with uh, Milvers, Weaver, Pinecone, um, and so on and so forth. Um, Open Search today is also part of uh, Facebook. Um, um, but that was, I think, then just uh, probably like a half half year after we launched Facebook. Oh yeah, that's awesome. That sounds quite quick. I know that VB8 was also emerging about the same time. 
uh, and then and then Milbus, I guess, as well. Yeah, that's that's that sounds super cool. Um, and was there any as you were approaching your clients uh, or like prospects, was there any specific use case that you would be demoing with because you knew this would uh, trigger the aha moment, like question answering or maybe a specific uh, domain where you did that? Um, yeah, I would say we were like for us it was a lot around question answering back then. Um, that was really where we created, I think, many of these aha moments. Uh, I still remember when we were at uh, at one client um, and we went this meeting and it was like on the in the financial uh, domain. Um, so we're interested in um, kind of asking questions on uh, financial reports of, of certain companies and uh, and basically accelerating their analysis and. Uh, at one at one point in this meeting, uh, we showed uh, what you can do with question answering, asking these questions, and and they also like uh, um, um, suggested own questions that we should ask, and and they worked. So it was, they were at that point then convinced. Oh, like that's not fake. It's not a um, like a smoke and mirror here. Um, and uh, yeah, the uh, basically the, the boss of that department uh, was uh, standing up and, and shouting like. Wow, that's that's amazing! And uh, went out of the office, entered the office next door, and and uh, carried over colleagues and, uh, and said like, "Oh, you have to you have to see that." And um, that was actually even before we started building Haystack. But for us, um, these kind of moments were very important to see. Hey, like this is something um, that is not just fascinating for for techies um, like we were, but also say business people, end users um, see that value and see. Uh, um, uh, value in their work for it. Yeah, I can I can imagine that, and it's like a class of what we call knowledge workers, right? It's uh, something that you spend so exactly. much time on 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 crafting these queries, and I have spent some time in the uh, full text finance, I would say, uh, at AlphaSense, and uh, I remember some of the clients they had uh, accumulated boolean queries over a period of 20 years right and they were like so long it's like several pages when you when you when you slap that into solar it runs for three minutes because our index layout was not what it is today and <laughs> was not very optim optimal um, yeah, it's and, crazy uh, to see what uh, what yeah. people kind of start doing as, as workarounds right so we had a similar case with a um, uh, with an uh, airplane manufacturer so it was not financial domain, but really on some more maintenance level, analyzing um, um, basically issues that come up uh, maybe in, in, in certain technical areas. Um, and they also had like these crazy Boolean uh, search queries and uh, people just became experts in, in crafting that. Uh, but it took them really long, like just asking or sending one query, creating this query. Uh, I was taking easily like minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, what Haystack is today? Can can you elaborate a bit on the architecture? And maybe if, if it's possible, if you find it easy, uh, if you put if you pick, let's say, a use case. Actually, I recently I uh, I was talking to one uh, stakeholder who wanted to build a chatbot. Uh, but it was a very specific domain. Uh, so that chatbot would actually ask you some kind of philosophical Zen-like questions, uh, sort of a little bit like distracting you from, from what's going on. Let's say you are on a conference and, and a lot of things go through your mind, but you don't register maybe what's going on. You don't 
yet see the value and and that zenbot might kind of ask you and well essentially allow you to pause and reflect right um but what i've realized is that yeah i could pick a, an off-the-shelf model let's say question answering bird or something but it probably wouldn't work on what i want right my domain is different and i had uh, an electronic book with this zen type of uh statements so i guess one question i'm, I'm hinting to is kind of fine-tuning or maybe even right retraining right but uh where would i start with haystack and and, and can you walk me through the architecture sure um so yeah, as, as mentioned earlier, I think the core principles are these building blocks and using these building blocks to assemble pipelines. And um, I would say the, the core where we come from is question answering and search. But by now, I would say the framework has, uh, has evolved a lot uh, in, uh, in that direction. If you have a lot of different nodes and can support a lot of different use cases going to translation, um, zero-shot classification, and um, you could, could use these nodes in isolation, or you can kind of assemble them and use them within your search pipeline. Um, so usually I think what, what, uh, what our users do and how they start is um, yeah, they often come with a kind of search use case, um, pick one of the um, standard pipelines that we have. So you can very easily, with a few lines of Python, um, create a pipeline for, uh, let's say, question answering or maybe dense retrieval. Um, pick a document store, um, you pick one model from, for example, the Hagen Face model hub, um, and, and we give some recommendations on, on which models might be, might be a good starting point. Uh, and then it's very easy actually to just put your files into, into your pipeline, it can be PDF files, we do the conversion basically for you, there's a node for it, um, and, uh, and just have a basic, say, demo system up and running in, uh, in a few minutes. Um, and that's often already, I think, a good, good starting point if you are maybe also new to that field, if you just want to try it quickly out on you know, this, this kind of ebooks that you mentioned um, and get a, get a first, let's say, qualitative uh, understanding how good are these off-the-shelf pipelines for my use case, um, get this first data point, and then basically uh, enter the, I would say, next uh, next steps typically in your project. If you see, oh, like this is uh, promising, but not enough for um, really going to production, um, then typically you go more in this experimentation mode where you say, oh, let's now um, maybe evaluate, compare a couple of different models. Let's maybe adjust this pipeline a bit to um, I don't know, add a, add a re-ranker maybe, or um, go maybe to the to a hybrid retrieval pipeline where we come basically have a BM25 retriever in, in parallel to a dense retriever and we join these documents. Um, and Haystack has a lot of functionality that, that makes that easy to, um, to um, basically um, change your pipeline as you want it very quickly and then evaluate if that gives you any, uh, any benefit. Um, if these say off the shelf options and combinations are, uh, are not enough for your use case, um, then, yeah, you can do go down the fine-tuning uh, route, I would say. We have a, uh, also we have open-sourced uh, um, a notation tool, a labeling tool, where you can create training data um, and, uh, and basically can and fine-tune parts of your pipeline, retriever or, or reader uh, for, for question answering. Um, so 
basically I would say everything from a quick prototype to okay, let's do some some experiments uh, here and there to then uh, going in, in, in production and deploying it with a uh, with a basic REST API on top, basically. Yeah, sounds cool. And um, so in that experimentation mode, I guess one um, one one aspect is like fine tuning you mentioned, right? The other is kind of like what building blocks I could plug in, right? And I know you guys have really good documentation. Is there something like a tutorial or or some kind of walkthrough that would even help me discover as a user what are the options? Um, so we have a couple of um, yeah, different different tutorials showing you what kind of nodes also you can use. Like many people are not aware of, um, for example, options that you can do at indexing time that might be helpful. So um, to give you an example, um, like enriching your documents with metadata um, can be incredibly powerful later at, at search time um, um, because you can then filter uh, down your search space to make more categories that, that you're interested in. And, um, and there we have, for example, tutorials that, that show you how easily you can, for example, classify documents um, uh, that you index into certain categories. And then later on at query time, use these categories to, to narrow down your search space, um, filter for these, uh, these categories. Um, on, the, on the model side, um, say if you are now, if you know that you want to have a, uh, say, QA model, a reader, and you're now interested in what model you want, um, I would probably suggest um, users to go to our benchmarks uh, page, which is um, linked from documentation. Um, there we have a couple of uh, comparisons in, in terms of accuracy and, uh, and speed. Um, but also we have um, there are most of our own models uh, on the, the Hagenface model hub, where typically you find in this information in, in, the, in the model cards. Yeah, that's awesome. So you guys, uh, in addition to open source version that I could, I presume could host completely myself, right? Yeah. I still have a bunch of questions on that open source side, but still, um, you also offer the cloud version. You call it DeepSet Cloud, is that right? Can you explain what users get with that? I presume scalability, but maybe something else. And um, I think we can we can leave a link to in the show notes as well for those users who want to try it out. Yeah, basically Haystack, the open source project is really a Python framework. Um, so you can do everything you want there um, to, to do prototypes, to experiments, and if you want also go to production with it. Um, but we also found in, uh, basically in, a, in addition to that, uh, people uh, want something more like they want really a hosted platform where it's really end-to-end -end, um, and uh, where basically uh, you have faster workflows. So really, I would say covering the, the whole life cycle of an MIP application from um, early prototyping to um, running many experiments in parallel, getting more guidance also from a UI perspective uh, on, on what to launch, uh, investigating um, certain documents in a faster way. Um, then to, okay, now I, I did all these experiments and I wanna have a kind of one click path to production. And I don't want to bo bother with any scaling and uh, and um, basically uh, productionizing on my side. And um, this is basically what what we do with DeepSet Cloud. So I can imagine as a um, yeah, um, hosted platform in the cloud, um, kind of a SaaS platform um, where you develop um, your NAP applications. 
um, and can easily bring them to production and, and monitor them afterwards. So really the, I would say, whole life cycle, um, uh, and especially, uh, I would say, on um, getting your um, getting your NLP pipelines uh, faster to production, um, as you would probably do it on a say, just Python level, um, and then continue monitoring them and, and having this closed loop if you, if you later want to maintain them. Yeah, sounds cool. And since it's kind of like, so with open source version, I presume I could do kind of a local uh, development on my PC, right? And then go and um, use some deployment pipeline to deploy it. With cloud version, I have sort of like a managed haystack, right? And now thinking about developer experience, are you guys moving more towards cloud tools as well? You know, like for example, a code editor could be in the cloud. So it changes and click click the button and off it goes. I don't even need to download it locally, right? Or or do you see some other trend with your users? Um, no, like we, um, I mean, maybe that's also an important point. So it's still a developer platform, right? So we are not in the low code, no code uh, space. Um, and what we really try is um, uh, basically giving developers the option to customize certain components and that then goes through coding. Um, and, uh, and there we have, um, uh, for example, editors um, directly on the platform where you can um, edit, for example, just the YAML definition of pipelines and quickly uh, switch certain parameters um, if you want to do that. Um, and then it's basically there's a, a hosted notebooks where you can also um, easily kind of open these um, uh, resources like a pipeline and we automatically create some Python code of it in a notebook that you can then uh, kind of edit um, as, you, as you know it also from Haystack open source adjust a, a certain component, um, debug it, maybe add another one. And then it's basically um, uh, just one Python line again to, to move away from the Python code in your notebook to uh, the say, production artifacts, the pipeline that is then deployed and, and can run production. Yeah, sounds cool. And if a user has um, some, as a user, I mean, it could be a company, right? So let's say they have a, an established um, tool set, you know, maybe if they use SageMaker, maybe they don't, maybe they use something else. Um, how do you breach this tool set that is, is kind of outside of Haystack? Do you have to? Um, I would say in most cases, not. Um, so um, you're, I mean, what where, where we basically stop, I would say with, uh, with DeepSet Cloud is when you have your, pipeline, your NLP service, and you have your REST API that you expose, that's kind of where we stop. So there's like a lot of, I would say, stuff in a, uh, in a company that is built around it when you integrate it into your product. And also on the other say, early side of where do the files come from? Where does data come from? How do you sync it into, into um, DeepSet Cloud? Um, but within that space, uh, we rather see people, um, uh, customers, who appreciate that it's like fully integrated and um, uh, they don't usually then uh, want to stay on, on SageMaker if they are on it uh, for these NLP use cases. So from our perspective, um, um, yeah, there are, I would say, these more generic solutions um, that are not specific for NLP, that could work for, for any kind of machine learning. Um, but if you really have 
cases where you want to be faster on your NLP use cases, uh, want to uh, have more, let's say, support on, uh, on, on, on that side. Um, that's basically where, where DeepSet Cloud then comes into play. And um, to give you an example, if you think of experiments, um, if you evaluate these pipelines, um, do give basically there a lot of uh, options to investigate predictions and um, what do these metrics actually um, uh, say. And um, this, I think, is something that is usually missing in, in solutions like SageMaker. You have to then really combine it with many other tools and build in there like a lot of extra stuff. Um, and, and that basically comes all together already with DeepSet Cloud. Yeah. So do I get it right? So DeepSet Cloud would offer me sort of an evaluation tool set, right? Can I get the same in the open source version or it's not present there? Um, you can basically evaluate um, uh, single pipelines also in the open source version. The difference is that um, basically in, uh, in DeepSet Cloud, you have a full overview over your project where you can really track uh, all your experiments. You can kind of compare them. You can launch easily 20 experiments in parallel. And this, especially on large data sets, is then with open source, I think, and, and, and generally, you would need to provision a lot of uh, machines, GPUs to, um, to run that in parallel. And that's basically what uh, one thing that we, that we offer in, uh, in DeepSet Cloud. Um, and the other is basically the, I would say, just the UI la layer over it. So, um, of course, I can uh, work uh, with, with Haystack on um, and, and get basically a, a report around my experiments. I get maybe a, a Pandas data frame. I get some metrics. Um, what we do in, basically on top in, uh, in DeepSet Cloud is um, allowing people to interact with this kind of data more easily, like finding uh, examples of um, queries that failed that, um, um, or that are successful, getting feedback from also end users, so collaborating um, basically with the, with the persons who, who use that search system at the end. Um, and now that's also what I think what we, what we saw a lot that, um, yeah, you can extract your predictions and maybe it's like a, a CSV and then you share it with your next colleague who then know, kind of rates or gives give uh, say human evaluation if these queries make sense or not. Um, but again, this is like a lot of friction. You have then a lot of these CSVs or Excel files floating around. Um, and uh, what, we, what we do is I think bring this together again, having it in one place that you can also in future uh, easily reuse that for, for other experiments, um, even use it for training uh, and, uh, and have it in basically in one central place. Yeah, sounds amazing. From what I gather, this sounds like an end-to-end MLOps platform specifically for NLP neural search, right? Because exactly. you, you have thought through so many things, not only the developer side of things like experimentation, but also um, you know debugging and actually going through the feedback from stakeholders or users and then communicating yeah. with them. Yeah, and I think this is like something that is... Uh missed in many projects, right? This like end user collaboration. And um, from our experience, this should, should really happen in, in a very early stage of a, of a project, but also then kind of continuously when, when you move to production and even when you are in production. Um, but I think like this is something which is, uh, if you don't have the right tooling, it's just very annoying <laughs> to, 
I don't know, you're probably like just building a demo, like a UI for some search system. If you are not a front-end developer, if you're an NLP engineer, uh, it takes some extra time. And, uh, and uh, even with um, now something extremely these days, it still is then annoying to do it properly. And if you're an enterprise, maybe you have some access rules, permission rules. Um, uh, but it's so important, I think, uh, when we look at what projects work out at the end, what um, pipelines from our customers go to production. Um, it's really a big criteria, I think, in, in the early days, like sharing a demo with your colleagues and end users. So really the first pipeline you have, uh, more or less giving it to the hands of users and seeing what, what they think about it and uh, how they use it. And uh, there were so many examples where um, NLP engineers thought they, they knew what people were, were searching. But after these kind of demo sessions or um, um, like uh, sharing a demo and, and seeing what, what people actually do there, um, and then they realized, oh, like they, I don't know, they use a lot of keyword queries or um, they never put a, um, a question mark at the end or they have a lot of uh, misspellings or what else. Um, so I think there's uh, a lot of early learnings that you can make as a developer from, from these um, demos and, uh, and just handing it out. Um, and also I think on the other side, just creating this early aha moment, this kind of wow effect uh, and some trust on the, on the end user side is, uh, is, is also um, crucial. Um, so I would say this is like the one point, very early demo, getting this initial feedback. And then probably the second point that we see often is um, uh, when you then had a time of running your experiments, tuning your pipeline, kind of, kind of the way to production having then at some point a, a second uh, phase where you um, where you just do again some say manual evaluation with, with end users. So not completely relying on, uh, on uh, machine learning metrics um, because we yeah, I think there's some kind of metric blindness in the industry sometimes. You just uh, kind of get obsessed with your one metric that you optimize in these experiments and whatever it is, uh, just increasing it from experiment to experiment. Um, and then you go to production and you, uh, and you realize, wow, well, okay, this metric is, uh, doesn't say, say anything about uh, the user satisf satisfaction that I have in the end. Um, and yeah, there are so many I think, examples from, from our customers um, where just handing out this pipeline, showing kind of like what search queries and results, and then collecting some easy kind of thumbs up, thumbs down feedback and, and then trying to correlate is that really what we also saw in our uh, experiments and our metrics. Um, um, uh, and then I think in many cases it was um, that either the pipeline was not yet ready for, for production and they realized, oh, like it's, it's uh, far less uh, accurate than we thought. Or also cases where it was the other way around um, where um, teams thought, oh, like we are stuck. We, we will never go beyond, I don't know, like a, for QA, F1 score of 60%. Uh, we, are, we are doomed here, it's, it's, it's not working. Um, and then they kind of handed out this, uh, these predictions or like gave this demo. And then people actually thought, oh, like, no, it's like these predictions are perfectly fine. Um, and, um, and when you then dig deeper, I think it's often um, that, uh, that um, engineers not look enough into the 
data, I think, um, and just kind of rely on this high-level metric. Um, and I think especially nowadays, uh, uh, these metrics only tell really, uh, I think, a part of the story um, because, again, like for question answering or also for, for search, um, if you have a evaluation data set, and let's say you always um, you know, label the exact answer for a certain question or query, um, there's just so many ways how you know can give a, a correct answer for, for a question that is different to this label. So to give you an example, um, we have many customers for financial domains. So a typical question there is, um, uh, how will revenue evolve next year? And uh, maybe in your data set, in your evaluation data set, you labeled um, it will increase by 12%. And now at uh, uh, say prediction time, your model maybe finds another passage uh, or generates the answer uh, and says uh, it will significantly increase. And so like there's no overlap at all from a lexical side, still both answers make sense and, uh, and are correct. And we can probably debate now which, which one is more accurate. Um, but in many cases there is, they, basically give the same um, same answer semantically, uh, but they're just formulated very differently. And um, that's where I would say traditional metrics fail. So yeah, we have unique better metrics and um, we um, basically uh, did some, some research work on that. And it's also part of Haystack where you can do like more semantic answer similarity as, as a metric. Um, uh, but it's of course also just, I think, looking at your data and uh, looking at these predictions and seeing if uh, if they're really wrong on or or if they're actually okay, and uh, maybe it's some problem of metrics or your labeling process where maybe you need to collect more different options that are okay. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's like um, it's it's a challenge of intersecting user language with whatever machinery you have to answer that right be it sparse search be it dense search doesn't matter like users don't care um, what they care is that their language is understood and often enough it's not uh, especially around things like bird if we go dance bird model doesn't understand negations right there was a research paper on that and that might actually harm uh, there was even a Google uh, example where <laughs> it's showing the opposite. Uh, like you, you say, I don't want that, but they say, yes, you actually do. <laughs> and then take that medicine, which might be harmful. Um, and, uh, and then the metrics is essentially what I gather from what you just described. Essentially, you might have offline metrics, right? Let's say NDCG or precision or recall, whatever. And then you have online metrics, right? And, and, and actually crafting the online metrics is, is also art, an art and it's never uh, ending journey. And um, just recently um, I came across one blog post which uh, was shared by a former Netflix uh, engineer. Um, I will make sure to, to link it in the show notes as well, describing click residual metric, right? So it's what is your expected success on, 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 on that, let's say, segment of your market, whatever, on the queries versus what you got. And then people still keep trying and trying and trying, but it just doesn't deliver. So you could have this as a low-hanging fruit to fix your system, right? And so do you see that uh, maybe that's already happening in Haystack or do you see that that might happen that 
I as a user might be able to describe my metric, let's say in the form of Python or JavaScript code or whatever, plug it into Haystack and let it measure uh, what I want and kind of mimic the online metric in some sense. Uh, you mean like providing kind of custom metrics? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, you can 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 do that to some degree already, um, uh, like plugging in basically like a Python function um, and and and, and uh, forwarding it. Um, that's the one way. I think the other is uh, yeah, probably on a on a node level. So um, yeah, obviously, as you can you can imagine, these pipelines they're providing at some point predictions, uh, be it answers or documents. Um, so you can also easily kind of add custom nodes where you say, okay, like this. Uh, this node should now, I don't know, compare it to whatever you, you want, or like maybe on an online setting, uh, kind of uh, write some logs somewhere, like you know, take some some signals um, uh, from 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 the early query um, um, to an uh, external setting where you can monitor it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's that's probably one of the kind of next steps where. Um, where we see it's more and more online uh, metrics, more and more online experiments. I would say right now where we see I mean, big parts of the market, I think there's still more in that phase of uh, developing, experimenting, finding the pipeline, getting it initially to production and having there really, a, I would say, a smooth journey and having a, a fast path to production. Uh, Kind of high success rates uh, for for these um, projects. Um, I would say this is where we right now focus on more. Um, but yeah, I would say further down the road, uh, if you really think about the whole ML ops lifecycle, um, I think on on the monitoring side, there's uh, there's a lot you can do on um, online metrics, but also then things like data drift. Do my queries actually shift into a different direction to these? Um, think a lot about query profiles. You know, think, okay, like what are actually these uh, these use case? How how are how can we describe the query distribution? Um, and this can be on a on a formal level, like um, uh, say again questions for those keyword queries, but could be also on a on a topic level um, um, to really understand. Okay, this is a profile at point A, and maybe we can match it with certain pipelines. Uh, but also, is that kind of changing over time? Yeah, yeah, you you somewhat anticipated like um, expected my question or sort of partly answered my question. My next question about where do you see uh, the biggest effort in Haystack and 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 DeepSet Cloud going? Let's say beyond MLOps, you know, tightening the knobs and making sure that this flies and works correctly. Um, more towards, I know you guys are also hiring a product manager, so sort of like more on vision side and connected to that, if you will, what do you think is missing on the market today still? Maybe in understanding, maybe in perception level, maybe in tooling, you already alluded also to things like metric blindness, right? And, 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 and maybe when users uh, get stuck in thinking that this is a wrong system, but actually it's not, they just didn't look the right way and things like that. Yeah. Um, there's, I think, a ton of work still left. I think we are, we, we already talked about it. I think uh, things progressed a lot in the last year, so it's crazy to see. But still, I feel it's uh, 
we're still uh, in the middle of it or just starting and uh, and there's so much more work and things you can improve and, and do better um yeah I, I would say for us right now there's like a lot of uh, different directions um but uh, i think especially on the on the open source side we um if we want to improve the developer experience also like simplifying the first steps uh, within haystack i think it can be still overwhelming and uh, we really want to make sure that get as many people to this first aha moment like uh, using it on your own data asking a few questions um comparing sparse to dense retrieval uh and, and really experiencing this firsthand i think this is um this is one of the things we work on um then a lot around multimodal um so we recently um, um added support for tables within haystack um so that's i think one interesting direction right now that you can, can really query into uh, these kind of tables in your documents, but maybe also further down the road into your SQL database as, a, as another data source. And then of course, everything around images, videos, audio. Um, um, it's also interesting for us. I think for our customers, it's typically less important than kind of text and tables, but still I think it's um, uh, interesting, interesting options that you can do there. Um, so yeah, I think that's like a lot on on, on open source side. Um, on DeepSet Cloud, um, yeah, we uh, recently launched basically the um, the experiments module. Um, that was I think one one big step forward there. Um, and now it's a lot around giving there also guidance and suggestions. Like uh, um, to give an example, now I have the exper I ran an experiment. I have like a lot of these metrics. I have a lot of data that was somehow generated. Um, but as it's not a single model anymore, it's like a, a pipeline. Uh, I really want to understand as a, as a data scientist, okay, like where, where should I not focus on or like where, what's probably a good way forward to improve this pipeline? Is it rather the retriever problem? Uh, is it rather another node that I should, should improve? Um, is maybe something wrong with my evaluation data set? Should I go back to labeling and you know, like giving these kind of, um, or at least making this kind of analysis easier um, is something that we work on uh, right now. Um, um, and then I think further down the road, um, it will be for us a lot um, expanding in this whole MLOps lifecycle. So we talk about like monitoring, but also making it simpler to integrate it at both ends. So um, and basically on the one side, ingesting your source data more easily and syncing it more easily into, um, uh, into DeepSet Cloud. Um, so that you can say, I don't know, I have a, maybe I have a wiki system that I use. Maybe, I don't know, I use Notion or maybe I use um, Confluence or I have a, I don't know, um, another Elasticsearch cluster where I've already my, my documents that I'm interested in. So we're having there kind of smooth connectors that you can, can import your data and, and directly work on it. And on the other end, you have your API. Now, how can I easily get now a, a kind of search bar or search functionality in my in my final product um so yeah, there's a lot of lot of things and then everything around fine-tuning uh few short learning with large language models that's something we are quite excited about um because as you mentioned i think right now there is we already think made a big step forward that uh, you there are a lot of use cases where you don't need to train at all anymore. And then maybe that's a misperception that we also see in, in the market. I think yeah, the typical users come to us and, and say like, oh yeah, I have this use case, how can I train? And, and then we usually ask, did you really need to train your own model? Like, have you tried 
this and that, like these kind of combinations and kind of models that are out there, like certain sentence transformers, uh, certain pre-trained uh, QA models or ranker models. Uh, and I said, like, no, no, but like, our use case is so different and um, uh, that won't work. And uh, in many cases it does, or at least they're surprised how good it is already. And maybe it's enough to get started on it. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's one misperception. Um, still, I think uh, there are then also these cases, uh, to be fair, where um, fine tuning still helps, right? And uh, where you really care about a few percentage uh, points, uh, better accuracy, um, and where you then go down and say, oh, let's now start labeling, let's collect either like within this manual labeling process or um, maybe from some um, more noisy, maybe real time, or like, a, like production data where you saw what people searched, what they clicked, uh, how can we use that maybe for, for training? Um, so that's something where we see big potential probably for, for next year. Um, and, uh, and basically want to simplify this domain adaptation um, uh, to have less manual effort and, uh, and uh, basically more um, automated way of, uh, of, of training it. Uh, and yeah, that I think was also about then in the direction of maybe large language models. Yeah, sounds cool. And, and if we go in even in, and look even further into the future, let's say, I don't know, five, 10 years out, do you think that Haystack at some point may even start suggesting the user what to try. You know, if you go and set up a KPI for yourself, right, your end goal, and then through the chain in that acyclic graph, it looks like finds a weak node and says, yeah, something is going on there. Um, then it would actually suggest you also to try some other model. Do you think it's possible or do you think it's a wrong direction at all? Like to, you'd rather leave this to the creativity of your users? Um, I think it's a combination of both. So um, uh, I definitely think that helps to accelerate uh, in, in certain parts of your work. Um, so I especially I think suggesting what experiment to run next or what, what it could be something you can try. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And I think we don't need to go probably like five or 10 years down the road. I think this is uh, happening already sooner. Uh, so like in, in, in Haystack and in DeepSet Cloud. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe just like one thing we are so we have at our company um, something that we call Hacky Friday. So it's like one Friday every month where every person in the company can work on whatever they want. So really hacking on crazy ideas, trying stuff out. Uh, and I know that this Friday, uh, people are, are working on a, a generative model um, where you basically give in, you describe what you want, like what kind of pipeline. So you can type in, uh, let's say I want a document search pipeline that works on uh, legal data um, that uh, is very fast, something like that. Um, and the output is basically a, a YAML file that describes this Haystack pipeline, uh, which you can then easily kind of load in Python, try out and, and also write a uh, load in, in uh, DeepSet Cloud and, and run it there. Um, so that's something we are experimenting with right now. And, uh, and of course, some time further down the road, I could see that you can um, take also like signals uh, from, from what we know from uh, what worked uh, on certain domains um, and, and you know, basically fuse that in into this maybe generative process. Yeah, yeah, it sounds cool. Actually, it reminded me of the time when I was doing my PhD something like 12 years ago, or even a bit more. Um, 
I had a collaborator who wrote a paper on taking taking the user text and converting that into C++ code. And mm -hmm. the use case, I don't remember exactly all the details of the use case, but I remember it was somewhere in the airport. So like they do a lot of this routine work uh, and instead of repeating it, you, you could actually build a, a smarter system, right? So you, th you, you think this could be the future of Haystack or maybe the industry at large? Yeah, at least I think it's like one, definitely one element that helps accelerating, right? So if you also, if you look at, uh, at, at Copilot right now, I, I, I like it a lot for coding and uh, I'm still in many cases surprised what, what Copilot suggests you as a, as a you know, on a code level. Um, and I think something similar is also possible on the machine learning side um, uh, that you yeah, not only generate the correct code, but really is something that fits for um, for a use case like to describe it. Um, I mean, I think it's like a, if you think about the bigger picture, I think it's one piece that helps you in your workflow. Um, I think it, uh, it's, uh, there's still like many, many other pieces that we need to get right. Uh, and that won't be, let's say the, the holy grail I think at the end. Um, what I really believe in is that um, you need a, a framework or a platform, however you want to call it, where you can easily compare things on your data. And, uh, um, and yeah, I think this, this helps a lot then in uh, creating transparency in the market, creating also like kind of trust for your own use case that you are not you know, basically doing a technology choice uh, before you actually start, really started working on, on your use case. Um, uh, and that I think holds for vector databases where maybe today this is a good choice for you, but maybe I don't know, one year down the road, uh, maybe you want to switch. There's, I think this market is so early um, um, that it's very hard to place a bet right now on, on one of these technologies. And similarly, I think this is on the model modeling side. Um, there's like so, so much crazy buzz around large language models. And you can personally really see the trend going there. Um, but it's also, I think, very important to, to understand if that's really useful for your use case now. Uh, how it compares to much smaller models, um, and uh, and yeah, this should be easy, right? This shouldn't this shouldn't be a big part of your project. It uh, should be rather uh, you trying to think about options you um, you want to try, maybe getting some suggestions as well there. Um, but this should be, I think, this you know, the human creativity part as well, and then the the actual uh, say swapping of components and. Uh, and um, comparing them, making them comparable. I think that's nothing where you should spend time as a developer on. Yeah. And like connected to the question about future, um, maybe in closing off on that, we recently built with my colleague Arne Talman a, a multimodal and multilingual uh, search demo, right? Where um, we used clip model off the shelf without any fine tuning on web data. And it, it showed us really, really amazing results, right? So like where keyword search cannot find because simply metadata doesn't have it and it's multilingual, right? So, and you, you type it the same query with uh, neural retrieval and it gets it. Um, is there anything stopping hashtag to move into that direction as well? Sort of like crossing the boundary of only text Right, so like you did say multimodal in the context of let's say querying a table, 
but I could also query an image. Do you yeah. think that high stack is going in that direction as well? Yeah, so we are actively like we are right now working on it. So um, we have a first uh, kind of uh, case where that we want to support where you have a text query, um, but you can query also into images. It's on the kind of result side, and then basically yeah, the other way around would be probably one of the, the um, later ones where you have an image as a query, and you want to find um, different media types, let's say. Um, but yeah, this is like definitely uh, yeah, what we're right now working on. Um, yeah, I think also like we need to I think always see what are then the, the big use cases and what kind of customers do you have and, and how do they use it. Um, I think with images, there's a lot of interesting use cases in mainly in e-commerce, uh, I would say. Um, that's, that's cool. Um, yeah, that's definitely something we, we, we are already supported to some degree and will support more, I think, in the next months. That's great to, to learn. And, and that also means that I need to adjust my classification because I've been pre presenting what I know about the players in, in vector database and neural frameworks. And specifically for Haystack, I put NLP as the main vertical. And I think largely you guys still advertise that as the main vertical, but I think nothing stops you from switching that to multimodality, right? So NLP, computer vision, and maybe even speech at some point. Yeah, totally. I think our approach is there is just a bit like um, say doing one thing uh, to, a, to a quite a depth first and then moving on to the next, rather than let's say starting with a very high level basic support for all modalities and, uh, and then kind of growing all of them. So yeah, what we rather did in the past and still doing is very deep support for texts and, uh, and yeah, we have there everything in place before kind of moving on to the next that's a bit of let's say a yep. philosophical question maybe a strategic question is what you how you want to do it of course so this field uh multi is changing quite a lot right so um a lot of things generative models um really big large models uh models that i don't know even how to use yet you know like dali um of course beyond just kind of experimental interest, but probably there will be some use cases. Uh, where do you think else uh, the trends are going in this space? Yeah, so I mean, like one, yeah, one big trend I think for sure is, is these large language models and, and everything around it. And as uh, yeah, I mean, we talked earlier about it, the question is like, where is it right now? And is it already today really usable? Is it already kind of worth? investigating them, comparing them for, for your own use cases. Um, and I think there we are, I would say, still in an early phase. It's uh, look at, um, for example, GPT-3 um, and, and Niels Reimers did a, did a quite nice uh, analysis earlier this year uh, where he compared um, embeddings from GPT-3 um, to uh, more say, standard size transformers. Um, and there we think we saw that it's, uh, yeah, the performance is uh, is not bad, but it's uh, also definitely not outperforming, uh, you say, regular size models, which are a uh, thousand times smaller, cost uh, a few dollars and not thousands uh, and tens of thousands of dollars for um, for you know, just inference uh, costs. Um, so I think there it's uh, it's basically right now is to let's see case by case if it makes sense for for a use case. Um, but if you um, think look a bit further into the next years, um, 
I'm pretty sure and convinced that this is uh, yeah, only a matter of time until we see um, more and more um, yeah, large language models really in production, also in, in search pipelines in production. Um, and uh, I think that right now it's this phase of figuring out how can we make them really more efficient, more also more reliable so that we really can trust these uh, these results there. Um, how can we an easier way update uh, to new knowledge? And um, and yeah, what we right now look a lot into and uh, what I'm personally quite um, excited about is, is now this, uh, I think, area of research around retrieval-based uh, NLP. So um, yes, on the one hand side, kind of scaling up the models, making them bigger, um, because we I think learned then over the last years that they are good few shot learners. And, um, and that's of course exciting because you can just take these models and uh, kind of throw a task at them and they will perform. So less uh, manual work of, uh, of um, annotating data, creating domain specific data sets and so on. Um, but I think we also saw that they are uh, not very efficient and there are these other problems. How do you how do you actually now uh, teach uh, no, GPT-3 about recent events or about your own domain knowledge? And typically I think these, uh, these data sets that you, that you want to search in, they're not static, right? So there's, they're constantly evolving and do you really want to retrain these crazy models uh, every few days or weeks just to kind of catch up with this? Um, and um, yeah, I think that's like where this, stream of uh, retrieval-based, retrieval-augmented uh, models uh, is, is super interesting. And um, uh, I think the, there's a lot of cool work. I just uh, uh, this week read from, um, from Patrick Lewis, um, uh, his publication around uh, the Atlas model. I'm not sure if you saw it, but there's basically the idea, uh, can, we, can we somehow uh, remove the, say, the, the memory part from these big models and it kind of outsource it to a, to a database, to an index. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and then at uh, query time, we still have like a large model. Yeah, that's like kind of a lot of complex reasoning, but it's kind of basing uh, the generation on some retrieved documents. And that can be useful for search, but can be also for you know, fact checking or, um, or other use cases. Um, and uh, yeah, long story short, I think, uh, uh, they have interesting, they did a lot of interesting experiments uh, in that paper that uh, show that you can actually outsource quite a bit of these parameters of this memory into a, into a say, a vector, vector database um, and, uh, and still keep the few shot capabilities of these giant language models. Um, and yeah, I think this is like a super cool route, like, um, yeah, larger models, but still not putting everything in it, not, uh, not um, yeah, blowing up parameters, uh, parameter sizes unreasonably, um, but still combining it with, uh, yeah, let's say, an external document base, or knowledge base. Yeah, I think it's uh, the topic you touched upon. It's, it's fascinating that on one hand, let, let's say you have a model, right? And if you, if you keep retraining it or fine tuning it on, on latest data, you may run into this, I think it's called catastrophic forgetting, right? So like things that we as humans know that, I don't know, water is liquid kind of on high level without going into chemistry. 
uh, it's not that we think about it every single day when we drink water, but like, it's not that we actually forget it if somebody asks us, right? No matter how many news or papers, whatever we've read or books, right? We still remember the basic facts. And, uh, and I think what you just said with the Atlas model, right? So approach uh, outsourcing uh, that memory into some database that you can maybe even control and say, okay, these facts need to stay. I never want them to go away no matter what, right? These are like basic principles uh, and maybe they exist in every domain like finance or healthcare and, and so on. And, and, and yeah, I, I think this is interesting direction. Yeah, absolutely. All these facts change, right? It can also be that over time you have to uh, you know, adjust uh, uh, facts or um, knowledge. And this is way easier, I think, if you have it explicitly somewhere in, in documents and not so much in the, just in the parameters of the model. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And like maybe just one example that comes to my mind is like city, cities change names, right? And so you could still go back and say, what was the name of that city between, you know, 1995 and 2000, right? Something like that. Yeah, or uh, presidents of, of nations also change, right? So um, for these kind of uh, queries, I think you you want to make sure that you're, that you're up to date and, and if, uh, change it. Yeah, and I think um, maybe coming back to search, understanding the context will play such a huge role once these models become even more mature and valuable and knowledge aware. But, but, but the, the challenge of extracting context from the query still is there. If I say, who is the president of the United States, it might you know, conclude that I'm asking about now, present. But if I was a couple paragraphs above already saying, setting the stage about specific period of time in the past, it could actually reason that I'm maybe not asking about presence right exactly it could it could do this reasoning or could you ask a, a clarifying question right or say like oh like here are a couple of options did you mean this like as you maybe would more do in a human conversation yeah so i think it's called conversational information retrieval right and, and yeah. i think that we might start seeing this blend of what probably today is called a chatbot and a search engine but it could be a search engine, which is just clarifying. Yeah, and I mean, overall, I think it's, uh, it's that's I think also as, an, as a field, I think we are uh, seeing that the search or what we understand under search is, is evolving, right? So it's not so much anymore. Uh, so I think about, about uh, um, web search engines, uh, in few cases, uh, you are still, you search, search and you click on the website and then you, search somewhere your information. Um, but in many cases, it's really this kind of zero click search now where you have your query and within the search results, you already find what you want. Right? And uh, um, I think this is just yeah, getting more and more popular that uh, um, yeah, you're not providing, say that's the, the route to go to another knowledge source, but you're trying to really um, uh, answer the query directly. And, and there's no need to go further. Yeah, I've also tried to remember to link one paper. Maybe it's like a series of papers from Microsoft uh, where they try to embed uh, knowledge into the language model. Um, and then that's, um, I think it's a very interesting direction as well as also embedding knowledge graphs 
into the model, right? Because one way, as you said, and I think that trend probably still there that, yeah, you can keep adding parameters more and more billions, trillions, but at some point it just simply becomes an, an, an impractical, right? To, to, to have such a large model in production and then how do you fine tune it? But again, it doesn't capture the relationships well enough, right? If you didn't explain it. Absolutely. Um, and uh, just thinking of it, we have actually a, a meetup uh, end of September. So if you are interested or anyone here is, who's listening, uh, where uh, Niels Reimers will also give a talk about exactly that topic. How do you kind of incorporate knowledge into, into a language model? And uh, um, and that will be our end of September. So just look for, maybe you can link it in the, in the show notes. Um, so our open NIP meetup series. Absolutely. We'll do that gladly. My favorite question. I, I know you touched many, many times as well during this podcast, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, uh, but what what else drives you beyond, you know, you have a role as a CTO, you have a role as a pioneer in this space uh, and, and maybe educating and, and reaching more and more people. Is there something else that drives you sort of beyond the tech itself in this field? Yeah, like, uh, I mean, I think my, my excitement, my passion for NLP is clear. <laughs> uh, I hope that came, came through. Um, but yeah, for me, like the, the technology is the one thing, but then really seeing how you solve problems with that, like how you can, I don't know, make annoying work of financial analysts uh, faster and better. Like just seeing that um, either say firsthand because they're a customer um, or I'd say more indirectly um, um, if, you are, if, you, if you know that this is now kind of possible. Um, so I think this is like still a big uh, driver for me personally. And um, I think uh, one thing that I absolutely love about open source um, that it's not just uh, paying users, commercial users where you kind of see that, but we are you know, really this, this huge community by now of, uh, from Haystack. Um, where yeah, there are so many different people with different backgrounds, different use cases. And it's uh, for me often like just uh, end of the day, uh, really like scrolling through on our GitHub issues, kind of questions that come in or on, on, on Slack or now we're on Discord, like what, what people are actually building with that. And, uh, um, and it's yeah, really cool to see what their kind of use case come up with, but also um, yeah, how far this actually got that it's, uh, um, used in so many companies all around the world from big tech to classical enterprise to you know, startups who build their products on top. Um, and I think this is still one of my, you know, the biggest motivation boosters that, that you can get. Um, yeah, seeing the community appreciating, using it, um, um, and, uh, and probably also like on say beyond GitHub, uh, just recently, Ran into a into a guy in a bar who, here in Berlin who uh, who used Haystack and uh, that's definitely something I, I never uh, would have imagined a few years ago. Um, you know, this kind of happens. Um, or what we said I think last year uh, when we kind of defined a bit our like vision and thought about some goals uh, at the company offsite. Uh, I think one of us uh, for the open source side that uh, uh, people start. Um, putting say a haystack experience into their job requirements or the other way around people putting that in their CVs. And we thought, oh, like, this is maybe three years down the road. Um, but then a few weeks afterwards, we saw these first uh, 
job postings where, uh, where this was required and also CVs uh, where this was uh, mentioned. Um, so I think that's, that's just cool to, to see how you can leave a footprint um, and beyond, let's say, your immediate bubble that really kind of spreads. It's open. It's uh, all digital. It's kind of connected in the world, right? Um, and, and leaving this kind of footprint is, uh, yeah, is really what, what I enjoy. Um, and yeah, I mean, search in, I think, as a, as a domain is just, uh, for me, really interesting because it's so diverse, right? So you can go in many directions, um, can dive very deep into NLP, can think a lot about the user side at the end for what use cases you can make it work. Um, can think a lot about scalability. Um, yeah, it's just, I think, the, one of the most, from my point, most exciting and diverse applications of uh, technology right now. Um, and, uh, and one way I think you can really relate to, like where you can sort of think, okay, what, what is actually possible? What kind of information you can make accessible? Um, and uh, that's, that's obviously the, the beauty of it. Yeah, yeah, it's beautifully put. Thanks, thanks for sharing. I know some uh, some of the um, guests that I asked this question would probably think, "Hey, why is this philosophical question? I'm just you know doing it. I like it. That that's it." <laughs> but I but I think it gives so much um, to towards you know you reflecting on what you do because that might also influence your choices. In, in, in the tech or in how you approach your users, uh, what message you send and so on and so forth, and, and maybe reconsider some things as well. And, and the open source part, you reminded me of one story when it was my first time visiting the US, I think it was 2015, and it was Apache Con. I was crossing on the um, uh, traffic light, you know, on the pedestrian crossing, and it was like this narrow avenue, you know, not narrow, wide narrow avenue, right? And it's like takes, on my account, like a few minutes, but it's of course not minutes, maybe 20 seconds. And somebody bumps into me from the other side of the road saying, I know you. I was like, no, it's impossible. It's my first time visit. You know, I don't, I'm not a public figure. Uh, how, how is it possible? And he said, because you built Luke, it's, it's one of the open source um, kind of Lucene index readers that I used to work on, um, you know, which I inherited from its original creator, Andrei Bilecki. And that's it. He didn't stop to, to say anything else, but, but he made my day, you know? And I, I think what you felt in the bar was mm-hmm. probably similar, knowing that that person uses Haystack and, you know, it's amazing. Absolutely, yeah, because it's just, it feels very honest, right? It feels like, okay, this is, is not because we, I don't know, had crazy marketing or anything like that. It's just like a really like a natural community thing and uh, and just building something that's useful for others. Yeah, exactly. Which probably reinforces you and gives you this, well, in this case, direct feedback. Well, not on the specifics of your of your platform, but actually the fact that they're using it and relying on it and building a business. And, and that tells yeah. that to the decisions you made in the architecture and so on and so forth. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, like from a company perspective, that's uh, one of the fastest feedback cycles you can have, right? And like just yep. seeing yep. diverse use cases, diverse developer personas, uh, how they approach things, what they are struggling with. Yeah. Um, yep. so also from that angle, I think it was fast. Yeah. Uh, absolutely crucial. 
I think it's the best. And it's like, I think it's Elon Musk who said the best setting is when your user fell in love with your product and wants you to succeed. So yeah, there you go. Amazing. And I've enjoyed this podcast so much. Is there anything you want to announce to our listeners? Uh, Yeah, I mean, just uh, the meetup I already mentioned. So um, if you're interested uh, in LP that's uh, happening in in September, it will be hybrid. So um, you can join uh, online, but if you're if you happen to be in Berlin, uh, we also have a, a small on-site uh, event. Um, and then, uh, yeah, of course, if you haven't tried Haystack yet, uh, maybe check it out on GitHub. Um, uh, as as prom- I would promise, you can get an easy first pipeline up and running and, and just give it a try. Maybe try to question answering if you haven't, if you're more coming from traditional search. Um, and yeah, on, uh, on DeepSet Cloud, um, as mentioned, we just... Uh, uh, released uh, a big new model on experiments we're still in an early stage with uh, um, with the product um, but we have an early access program so if you're interested if you have an ap use case that you want to bring to production uh, in, a, in a fast way where you think about how to scale it how to actually find that pipeline how to collaborate with uh, with your end users and get some feedback there um, just reach out uh, to us um, um, and then we can can get you on the on the early access program. Amazing. Thanks so much, Malte. I've enjoyed again saying this. And this was deep and thoughtful. Um, and uh, we will make sure to link all the all the goodies that you mentioned uh, uh, in the show notes. And I hope uh, to meet someday, um, maybe in Berlin, maybe somewhere else. Uh, but absolutely, yeah. Um, let's make that happen and yeah, I, I totally enjoyed uh, our conversation as well so um, yeah, thanks a lot for, for having me uh, it, was, it was definitely an interesting fantastic interesting all the best with Haystack and, and uh, with your research and development thanks a lot thanks Malte bye 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 bye